0: Good morning. Welcome to Church of the Incarnation. I want to start off this morning just by celebrating what happened here yesterday. I pulled into the parking lot just before 11 a.m. to help with the food distribution. And it turns out I couldn't park in this parking lot. It turns out I had to park all the way down at the very end because our lot was so full of people that were excited to... Received some food. The line was literally all the way down uh, to, to like the last shop down there. And um, we were able to, with the help of our partners, feed 265 families uh, from the event yesterday. Of course, we had face painting and a bounce house and arts and stuff for the kids. So I want to say a special thank you to Stephanie, our partner from Los Pecinos and also a member here. Uh, that is the major coordinator for this, uh, together with the Y, and then uh, Jess, our parish admin, who uh, together, the two of them uh, did, did most of the work on our side. And so uh, anyway, I'm so thankful. Uh, it was such a, f- a great and fun day. I'm thankful for you guys, even folks that weren't able to be there we're there in a sense just by making space, right, for something like this to happen. And everyone who has been involved in food distribution in this area is telling me, oh, man, it's so much better here that we're able to do this here in the space and works so much better for us. And um, thanks to you guys that are making space for folks to get fed in, in so many ways. I want to start off the sermon today with a quote that might be from President Eisenhower. <laughs> We say might because so many quotes on the internet, you're not really sure. Um, But he seems to be the guy that's behind this whole conversation around urgency and importance. And I want to talk a little bit about that. What is important is seldom urgent, and what is urgent is seldom important. Let's imagine a scenario. It's 3 p.m., On a Saturday, I'm on the way home from the grocery, and I have a kid in tow. And I think, hey, it's not often. I just have one kid with me. Let's do something special. So maybe we slip into a bakery, I don't know, White Windmill, something like that, right? And I say, hey, get whatever pastry you want, right? We're going to eat a pastry together, drink a cup of coffee, hot chocolate, whatever. Just kind of have a moment together, right? When you got a ton of kids like I do, it doesn't always happen. So you're there. You're having the moment with your child and then all of a sudden, you hear a ping. There's a vibration in your pocket. It's text. I am an important person. <laughs> maybe it's a friend I haven't heard from in a while. Or maybe Jana wants me to pick up something on my way home. Maybe someone from church needs me. Maybe there is something that is going to happen tomorrow and they need to let me know. So I reach into my pocket and I pull out my phone. It's an urgent message from a clothing company <laughs> that I once bought a T-shirt from. All caps, new chains, hoodies, and crew necks. Get 20% off for 20 minutes use code 2020. It's urgent. I have received a message that is extremely urgent but has zero importance for my life. I have been distracted from what is most important and yet is not urgent. My kid across the table from me. This morning we are going to examine the life of Christ and through his life we get to examine our own. So this morning I want to talk to you for a bit about one, the urgent versus the important. Two, how would Jesus decide what is most important? Three, what was important for Christ? And four, who are we and what is most important for us? Now, if any of you guys are familiar with, um, I don't know, coaching and um, this kind of self-improvement stuff, you might be familiar with the the urgent, uh, important matrix, also known as the Eisenhower matrix. Again, we don't know if Eisenhower even knew about the matrix, but he was president and also like was pretty well organized. So uh, it's a good person to name things after, right? I think he won a whole like important war and uh, there was a lot of organization that went into that. So we can give him credit, even if he didn't create it. All right, so there's these different boxes, right? The further you go up in the box, the more important it is. And then uh, the further left, the more urgent it is and to the right is non-urgent, right? And so in the very first box, the top left box, these are things that are urgent and important. So things that have to be taken care of right away. And when you're living life here, you feel like you are constantly putting out fires and operating in emergency mode. So examples of tasks in this quadrant might be, finish a project proposal that is due tomorrow. Your science fair project is due tomorrow. You need to make your sales quota before the end of the year and it's December 5th. Your child threw up in the middle of the night and now you have to keep her home, right? It's urgent and it's important. And then we have the second quadrant, and here things are important but not so urgent. Things that are really important, but they don't demand your attention today. So here you feel like you are on top of things because of careful planning, preparation, and prevention. So here we're talking about things like long-term planning, super important, but if you don't do your long-term planning today, nobody's going to be like, where is it? building relationships think about it being a friend to your coworker calling your mother going on a date with your wife no one is going to freak out if you didn't do this today but in the long run if you don't attend to relationships they won't work out right also included here we could say things like eating healthy going to the gym today praying and reflecting on scripture Then we have the bottom left quadrant. And here things are urgent, but really not so important. Things that are asking for your immediate attention, but are not necessarily related to your top priorities. And so when you're here, you feel like you are constantly dealing with issues that are important to others, but not related to your own priorities. Examples include responding to phone calls and emails that are not especially important attending non-essential meetings, handling minor customer complaints, reacting to minor issues, text messages from a flash sale about a place uh, that you once uh, bought a T-shirt from or something. And then there's the fourth quadrant. It's neither urgent nor important. You spend a lot of time here on busy work that is not directly related to your goals. Social media, maybe, or video, or games, or pointless web surfing. Here, you feel like you are wasting time. Examples include trivial social media browsing, uh, also known as doom scrolling. Excessive calling or texting or conversations during work hours that are not helping. Unnecessary perfectionism. I thought that was a good one. And so we also have a chart that kind of tells us what to do for task in each of these these quadrants, right? If it's urgent and important, well, you kind of have to do it. You have to do it now, right? If it's not urgent, you need to decide. You need to schedule, okay, this is the most important part of my life, and I'm going to decide when the pencil in time in my schedule to make this happen, right? And then the bottom left quadrant, these are the things you want to delegate as much as possible. Find someone else if, to do it for you if possible. And then in the bottom right, well, you can just delete it, right? If it's neither urgent nor important, we can seek to eliminate tasks in this quadrant. Don't worry. This isn't a sermon about time management. I'm going to get to Jesus. I've just got kind of to setting up a framework, all right? The second quadrant, I mean, I know what you guys come here for the gospel, right? The second quadrant, so the top right, is the per- purposeful plan quadrant. This speaks of a life driven by your own convictions and priorities, not those of your well-meaning friends and coworkers. It's a life driven by your internal compass, not the pings and notifications of your phone. Generally speaking, the more time you spend in the second quadrant on tasks that are important but not urgent, the more intentional your life will be. Basically, your daily actions will be more and more aligned with your goals and your priorities. Knowing your priorities will then free you from the tyranny of the urgent. So that brings us to the question. How would Jesus decide which is most important? If you think about the tasks for Jesus, how would he put them in the different boxes? As we read today in our gospel, good people were constantly bombarding Jesus with good priorities. There was an endless amount of people to heal, to teach, and to feed. How does Jesus sort through it all? We read in verse 31, the disciples come and they say, hey, everyone is searching for you. Your inbox is blowing up. You have so many likes on Instagram. You're the hottest stuff and everybody wants a piece. And with all that work and all that demand, how is it that Jesus was never feverish? How is it that he always seemed poised? How is it that he seemed to have enough time to strike up a conversation with a stranger like a woman at a well? And other times he was so free to say no and walk away, even from the most fruitful of projects. Let's take a look at the text and make some observations. And verse 39 says, as soon as they left the synagogue. So this is Jesus and his ministry team in this synagogue. By the way, Jesus is just astounded, the text tells us, the people by his teaching. And he had also uh, cast out some demons uh, and kind of freaked everyone out. And then they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told him about her at once, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset they brought to him all who were sick or possessed by demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And then you might remember two weeks... By the way, we've been in Mark 1 now for several weeks, which is just amazing. It shows you just how much it's packed into this amazing chapter. I uh, just encourage you to keep staying in Mark 1. Keep reading it, rereading it as we go through each sermon. You might remember two weeks ago, Jana preached on just a few verses back in Mark 1.14, where it began this way. After John was arrested, Jesus came out to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And so from there on to this story right here, we get one continuous snapshot of what Jesus' day job is like. It appears that Jesus clocks in in the morning, and then he begins proclaiming the good news in both word and deed. He goes from town to town saying, hey, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, change your minds, and believe the good news. And then he goes on to demonstrate that good news by driving out the kingdom of darkness. People who are bound by demonic forces are set free. People who are bound by sickness are healed. Do you ever have someone ask you, like, so what do you really do? Like, what's an average day look like for you? For some of us, it's a little bit easier to answer. Some of us have jobs that feel a little bit random, so it's really difficult to say what an average day is like. But it seems like for Mark, it seems pretty obvious to get a picture of what Jesus' average day is like. It seems like every day he's doing the same thing, proclaiming the good news, calling people to repentance and belief, and healing the sick and casting out demons. Maybe there's a lunch break somewhere in there. Here's the challenge. There are sick people in every direction. And if you could heal the sick by praying for them, we could line them up like we lined up the folks out here yesterday, but eventually we would run out of daylight. And then we would have to start over again tomorrow. And so you are limited by time and location. Our text tells us that Jesus had found a quiet place to pray early in the morning and that his disciples had hunted him down, right? They hunted for him. And verse 37, when they found him, they said to him, Hey, everyone is searching for you. Things are going so well here. There's endless demand for your ministry. And if we stay right here in this place, we are going to see all kinds of fruit. So let's build a great home base where we can launch your ministry. And Jesus answers... Well, now, let us go on to the neighboring towns, that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout all Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus says, yes, healing people is important. It's part of my job. But staying here in Capernaum is actually Quadrant number three for me. It's urgent and it has some importance, but it does not align with my highest priorities. It's not what I came out to do. And so we have this question. Where does Jesus get his priorities from? How does he decide what to stick in quadrant two, what is most important, and the highest priority and How is he able to say no what might feel super urgent? Well, I have two ideas on this. I think the first one is that Jesus knows who he is. Something happened just before he launched his ministry, back in verse 9, and it's actually something that we keep coming back to almost in every sermon, and it's going to come up again in the lectionary reading next week again. And actually the week after that. (laughs) It's this episode of what happens when Jesus is baptized. And he comes out of the water, and the Holy Spirit descends on him, and he hears the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus knows who he is, he's confident in who he was. He knew he was the beloved Son of God, and he allowed that identity to define his priorities. People had things they wanted him to be. The kind of particular Messiah they wanted. And then they wanted someone to heal them or to fix their problem. And they had places where they wanted him to make an appearance. And all of these people were important. And loved by Christ. But at the same time, Christ refused to let these people define his identity. His identity came from the father and the relationship he had with his father. His freedom came in decision making uh, from his confidence in his identity. I would like to suggest to you this morning that the two most important questions you will ever answer, or questions of identity. Two questions of identity are, one, who is Jesus? And two, who are you? And I mean them in that order. (laughs) The two questions of identity that you need to settle, for good reasons, our modern world is obsessed with identity. Our conservative friends want us to find our identity in our nationality, our cultural heritage, and then individual responsibility. And our liberal friends want us to find our identity in social categories like race or gender or sexual orientation and socioeconomic status. But I would like to suggest to you that you cannot know who you are until you have first answered the question, who is Jesus? The biggest questions about your identity, like if you have a purpose, and what were you made for, and what is your time worth, and your energy, and who should you be, and what should you become, all of these are questions that are best answered by first answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? is he really lord is he really ruling all things and superintending human history is he the savior the solution to all your deepest problems could he be the source of life could he be the judge at the end of your life is he the future is god recreating humanity in his image is his way of living the kingdom, life the only future there really is, or is there something else? It's a question that is both highest priority eternally and in the present. You might say it is both very urgent and both uh, urgent and very important. And then once you know who Jesus is, I think the most important question you can answer is, who are you? What did God make you for? What's your purpose and your calling? Here's an example. I'm good at a lot of different things. But for now, God has called me to be a pastor. And for me, that means saying no to a lot of good things that I could be doing. Well, what are you called to do? What are some of the things you're called to say yes to? Some of the things you're called to say no to. So where does Jesus get his priorities from? How does he decide what is most important? Well, one, we're saying, one, he knows who he is. And then the second thing is, I think it's that he prioritizes prayer at the beginning of his busy work day. In the middle of the story that we read, uh, in the middle of this busy day in Jesus' life, we see that in verse 35, in the morning, while it was still very dark Jesus got up and went to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Remember, this is where he is when the disciples track him down to tell him that everyone is looking for him. And this is where it is that they tell him, let's go out. And Jesus says, no, we're going to go on to the other towns. You see, friends, Jesus knows who he is, and he has spent the early hours of the morning in prayer. Connected to his father, discerning his priorities, discerning his call, his purpose, his next steps. Prayer was for Jesus in the second quadrant, something very important, so important he had to plan time for it, had to make sure it happened. He knew sooner or later the sun would come up and folks would be hunting him down. We are right now only 10 days away from Lent. Lent is coming. Our focus for Lent this year is prayer. Esther Nicely is going to be teaching a class on Sundays uh, before church on prayer. And I encourage you to be a part of that class it's happening at 9 a.m. in that room right across the way. Lent takes preparation and planning. We all need to spend some time reflecting on how God might be calling us to keep the great fast. You'll need to do the work of planning for yourself. But let me give you a few tips. Number one, maybe you could use this time to delete distractions. Lent is a good opportunity to delete as many distractions from your life as possible. Remember quadrant four, uh, things that are unimportant and wasting your time and not urgent. I'm sure I will jump off of at least my personal social media for a good 40 days. I'll probably stick my TV in the basement. I haven't told my kids about that yet. (laughs) But it'll probably be down there. Two, plan extra time with God. Plan a personal retreat. Plan some time in there where it's like, I'm going to take a whole morning and just go spend time with God. Call the church and be like, hey, I want to come sit in here for a couple hours. Can I do that? And we'll be like, yeah, you can do that. Go find a monastery. Monastery of the Holy Spirit. Take a ride out there and just go spend a day. Three, repent and believe the gospel. Schedule some time to confess your sins to a priest. If you're going to do that, you're going to have to spend a few hours in preparation so that you can make a thorough confession. Believe the gospel. Maybe it's time you found a few books that are going to help you aid in your belief. Or maybe you're not sure what to do, but I encourage you to talk with a pastor or a leader or church, somebody here in the church, and maybe figure out how to get to the next level and your faith, and your belief. And then four, just make a plan on how you're going to fast. Eat less meals. Cut out some of the most delicious things that you love. Fast on Fridays. Make a plan. So we've been talking about how Jesus decided his priorities, and I'm saying the how came from one knowing who he was And then two, spending time in prayer. And now I want to talk about what it was that was important for Christ. Not how did he decide, but in a sense, what did he decide and what did he go for? And the answers are pretty similar. We've kind of already named them. One is prayer, right? We've already noted that for Jesus, this was in his top right quadrant. Things that are important that I'm going to have to make time for. I'm not going to get to work and my boss can be like, hey, did you pray before he came? We can't start his meeting. I need you to do that, Right. Your kids aren't going to, when you come home from work, aren't going to be like, well, Dad, I can't wait to play for you, but did you pray? You know, not going to happen. So for Christ, prayer was important. But there is another huge priority that is revealed in this passage. Verse 38, Jesus answers, Let us go to the neighboring town so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came out to do. What is important for Christ? Proclaiming and demonstrating the good news. Preaching the gospel. Sharing the good news. Getting the message out. Jesus says, hey, this has to take precedence. I have to get it out to more people. Not just here, we got to go to the neighboring towns. Notice the text is not saying that evangelism is more important than exorcism or healing. The next verse says that they went to the neighboring towns and did all three. It looks like for Jesus that evangelism includes both proclamation and demonstration, announcing the good news and demonstrating the good news of the kingdom. The idea here for Jesus is that his ministry cannot stay in one place. There are more people to include, more towns to go tell. I don't know about you guys, but whenever I go almost anywhere, I use Google Maps. And that little voice talks to me and tells me things until I get to the place where I'm going. And then it says something that I just love to hear. You have arrived. (laughs) I have arrived. I love these words. They sound so good every time, even though I know they're coming. Often as a church, we can feel like we have arrived. Look at this beautiful church that we're sitting in. Look at these beautiful people. All kinds of beautiful people here. We have arrived. And this morning, Jesus is reminding us of what he came out to do. He's out here trying to spread the news to folks who haven't heard yet. There's still towns that don't know. There's still more people out there that need healing and deliverance it has to be priority for Jesus. Fourth and finally, we're answering the question, who then are we? And what is most important for us? Who are we? Well, we are first and foremost Simon's mother-in-law. You are Simon's mother-in-law. Preston, you are Simon's mother-in-law. I am Simon's mother-in-law. Why? Because we are sick in bed and we don't have the power to heal ourselves. We are literally lying on our back when Jesus finds us. And we need someone to rescue us from the power of death and so we are reaching up for jesus he is the one who grabs us by the hand and lifts us up out of the bed and what i love about jesus is that when he finds simon's mother-in-law powerless to help herself he then lifts her up and he heals her and immediately he releases her into ministry The text tells us that the fever left her and then she got up and she began serving Jesus and his ministry team. Right away she goes, right into the ministry. The people that were supporting Jesus' ministry, they were not self-made people who pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. They weren't spiritual athletes. It's people like Mary Magdalene who had been bound by demonic forces and then freed by Jesus. These are the kinds of ones who are bankrolling Jesus' ministry and they're there behind the scenes making sure it all happens and they're the ones that are witnessing the resurrection. Who are we? We are people who are desperate for a savior. People who are constantly reaching up to Jesus to help us. We are also the ones that are healed and released into ministry for the sake of the kingdom. That's who we are. And then what is most important for us? Well, each of us needs to prayerfully discern in Christian community our individual gifts and calling and priorities. But collectively as a church, what is most important for us? If we as a church had to put the different task and we had to stick some task up in quadrant two, what might we put there? Things that are super important. Maybe, maybe if we don't do them today, no one's going to freak out. But if we don't do them for the long run, we'll never be healthy. Well, I think they're the same for Jesus, right? We've got to be people of prayer. We've got to be people of prayer. I feel like we have that pretty well organized here. We're doing pretty good on that first one. And then we have the second one, evangelism. Announcing and demonstrating the good news of God's kingdom. We've got to prioritize our call to be a sign of God's beauty, goodness, and truth for folks that have never met Jesus, haven't had a chance to see what God is like in the world. What does it look like for us to get the word out here in Atlanta. Well, we don't have a lot of time left in this sermon, do we? <laughs> to talk about it. I encourage you to go home and to contemplate what that might look like for us. It is a conversation we need to have. As you do, I invite you to go home and reflect and to think about Paul's words that we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 9. When he says this, I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, so that I might become a partner in it. He became a servant of all kinds of different people for the sake of the gospel. What would it mean for us to become learners of the culture around us, to become learners of our neighbors? Agents of the good news, to become servants with willing hearts that we learn from our neighbors and we humbly learn to embrace their various cultures and values in order that we might share the good news and win them over to the way of love. We all have different neighbors here, so it might look different for you than for me, but I think it's a serious question we might want to ask. I'll name one little posture that we're going to do. During Lent and the liturgy, you're going to notice for the Our Father, we're going to also pray it in Spanish. That's going to be a great little exercise for us. Some of us already know Spanish. Some of us don't. So you're going to get to learn it. It's a great way. So many of our neighbors here do speak Spanish. And learning to pray with them is just a wonderful gesture. It's a wonderful posture. doesn't mean you're going to become fluent, but it does mean if somebody needs prayer, you could actually sit with them and pray. Padre Nuestro. Sanctificado sea tu nombre. You can pray that with them. What a great prayer. What a great step in their direction. God grant us grace to be people of prayer who prioritize the spreading of your good news, the message that reconciles us to you, heals the sick, and casts out the forces of evil. Amen.